knowing what a challenging day the first day of a retreat can be, I I often endeavor to to give a kind of upbeat talk the first night, you know. Make sure you you feel that all is not lost. Um, But tonight I'm not. Um, (laughs) So it's uh, maybe, hopefully, not a talk to depress you. Um, Certainly not my intention, but perhaps a little bit more challenging. I really want to talk a little bit about orientations in practice and I can almost I could almost call this talk the ground on which we stand. <coughs> so in a sense I really want to try and contextualize the practice and even try to contextualize some of what you've been encountering today in some of the challenges, some of the tensions. The the Buddha could be described in a lot of different ways. Clearly he wasn't a hermit. He was a person who lived in community, in an ongoing interface with the world around him on politically, socially. Um, He wasn't very interested in metaphysical debate. He was very interested in the grist of each of our lives, what makes us a human being, what is our potential, what hinders that potential. He wasn't that interested in uh, altered states of consciousness. Seems from the teaching he was really interested in the question of what it means to be an embodied human being. He was an ethicist, primarily concerned with uh, an ethical way of being in this world, knowing that this is the basis of all harmonious communities, relationships, societies. And he was a pragmatist. He was a realist. So the Buddha very firmly seated the teaching and the path in the classroom of life. Exactly the same classroom that we inhabit each time we take our seat on our cushion, the same classroom we inhabit each time we go to our walking path. And his ongoing encouragement was to turn towards this classroom, to turn towards the moment. In a way, what the Buddha did in his time was almost to redefine this word karma. You probably all have heard of it, at least it's a perfume. Karma, as we often hear of it as karma. And he, he says this is not about some inherited burden, this is not about some preordained state. But karma is really concerned with what we do, with how we live. Um, that this is the ongoing encouragement to examine all of that, how we move through this life. This is our curriculum. And in a very real sense, there's there's no curriculum outside of this curriculum. This is our classroom, 
How do we live? How do we act? How do we speak? What do we do? What do we embody? And what moves all of this? How do we understand and how do we relate to our inner world of experience that we discover moment to moment? What do we learn there? What do we learn about what leads to distress and what leads to the end of distress? What qualities of of friendship, of compassion, of equanimity do we bring to this life, to this body, this heart, this mind? How do we learn to meet the people and the events and the challenges in our lives with those same understandings and those same qualities? The Buddha was a person of questions, not easy answers, not easy solutions, and not prescriptions. He was a person of questions, asking us to explore, to understand for ourselves, to develop our own sense of capacity. Now, the the Buddha recognized the, the moments of joy in each of our lives. This is not a joyless path. He recognized the unsought moments we each encounter in our lives of of spaciousness and sensitivity and connectedness and delight that gladden our hearts. And he recognized the potential of every human heart and every human mind for liberating understanding, for immeasurable kindness and joy and compassion and equanimity. He recognized and acknowledged the potential that each of us has to ease the suffering and the distress in our world. It's very clear when you read the Buddha's teaching that the Buddha always sought for graduates. He didn't seek for followers. He didn't seek for eternal and perpetual students. He sought for graduates, and he encouraged all of the students um, to come to those understandings. And in a way, I, I think of this as one of the Buddha's greatest legacies, this, this timeless encouragement and, understand, uh, and inspiration to come to exactly, for ourselves, the same liberating and healing insights that the Buddha had encountered and understood in his own path and his own explorations. This is a path of enormous confidence. Confidence that is instilled in each person uh, who, who walks on this path. The Buddha actually translates as an awakened one. You know, it's not somebody's name. It's not not somebody's name. The Buddha Buddha translates as an awakened one. And the encouragement is to awaken in our lives, to find within ourselves the understandings that unbind the heart, that transformation is really in our hands. But the Buddha also recognized the potential of every human heart to know struggle and sorrow and pain. And in a way, this is why the teaching touches us. 
because we all know about grief. We all know about the sadness of losing those we love. We probably all know about the struggles we are asked to embrace, the changes that are unwelcome. We all know the pain of being separated from those we love, the disappointment of not getting what we want. Increasingly, depending on how old you are, we all know about pain in the body and aging. And we struggle with our inability to protect those that we love from hurt. We know, may know the pain of being made invisible or misunderstood. And even today, I'm sure everyone here has encountered moments of discontent and moments of chaos in our own minds and hearts. We probably all suffer and struggle and feel sorrow uh, of the conflicts that we can find ourselves in with another, and at times our seeming helplessness to heal the kind of global destructiveness and the violence and exploitation in our world. We can feel ineffective in changing all of those. But you know what? All of this lives in our classroom too. All of this is part of our curriculum too not outside of it. Joy and sorrow. And we may not hold in our hands the the power to transform the whole world with its myriad struggles and sorrows, but we can contribute to the awakening of our world, to changing the shape of our own mind, and changing the shape of our world in that moment through understanding, through intimacy, through kindness, through compassion. Our mind is changed. Our heart is changed. And we learn to touch the world around us with those qualities. But it's not easy to wake up, is it? It's, many of you have been in this practice a very long time. It's, it's not easy to wake up. And for those of you who are just beginning Please don't feel discouraged at this point. We're not going to take testimony from those who say, you know, I've been here a long time. But it's not easy to wake up. And there was one of the stories that uh, in the early texts where uh, the, the Buddha encounters a, a man standing in the forest and he's standing on one leg. He's been there a long time. And the Buddha says, well, what are you doing? And the man says, well, I'm I'm working out my karma. And and the Buddha says, well, you know, how much you got rid of? And and the man answers, he says, well, I'm not really sure. And and the Buddha says, well, how much have you got left to go? And and the man answers, well, I don't really know. And the Buddha says, well, how will you know when you get there? And the man again says, well, I have no idea. And this is a point where the Buddha goes into one of his long tirades, you know, about you foolish man, this is a you know, wrong pathway, this is wrong view, etc., etc. But I would like to bring that story into our life. Because, you know, we don't go around maybe standing on one leg in the forest, some may, but 
it's maybe not so such an entirely different mind from us today. We have our own ascetic practices. We learn to bring judgment and shame and guilt and blame and doubt to the chaos we find in our own minds and hearts. Meditation is a kind of intimacy. It's an intimacy with our own being. And mindfulness really has a purpose and has the effect of illuminating our world of experience and all is revealed. And what we learn to do, and we very much learn, I hope we're learning this on retreat, we learn to yield and we learn to surrender our avoidance patterns, our abandonment patterns, our, our flight patterns, you know, the, the avoidance patterns of busyness, uh, of distractedness, of outwardly centered preoccupation. And when we're willing to yield and to surrender those flight patterns, in a way we're kind of stripped bare of all of the filters and all of the camouflage that we surround our experience with. And initially, this doesn't always seem like good news, does it? There's a reason those flight patterns exist. And it's because it can be really quite uncomfortable to be faced with the spectrum of our habit patterns so, so directly. But this stripping away of those flight patterns, in a way, this is really the, the very first step of waking up and the very first step of no longer being governed by habit patterns. And yet it's a delicate line to walk this, this intimacy because we can so easily personalize it all. We bring judgment. We can bring, build a, a self-image based upon imperfection or reinforce an existing self-image of failure or insufficiency or incapacity. There's another ascetic practice I think we engage in, and I think it's a kind of newish one actually, and, and I, I find that it exists particularly in Western practitioners. And that's when we turn what we're doing here, and when we turn the, this contemplation and, and this path and this practice into work. And I referred to this last night. It's a particular... Western form of ascetic practice. Doesn't it seem like we have an awful lot to work on? We're in the forest there on our leg, working on stuff. We work on our issues. We work on our difficulties. We work on our imperfections. We work on our cushion. You know, we work on our walking path. And sometimes we're really good at working. We have a really long history of being good workers. And I think when we have this, this particularly novel approach to practice of work, and I really want you to think if this rings any bells for you, 
you know, that you're working on stuff. When we have this particular orientation towards our contemplation, I think there's some really, really important questions to ask of ourselves in this approach. How do you measure where you are? How much judgment have you got rid of? How much is there left to go? You know, how much self-doubt have you got rid of? How much is there left to go? You know, how much of aversion have you got rid of by now? How much is there left to go? How do you measure where you are? And what is the kind of solution we're envisaging? Are we envisaging a, a kind of a sense of a self that's going to live happily ever after, that we're going to work on stuff and we're going to get spit out at the end of this long journey of toil, you know, with a cooperative mind and heart? Is this work sometimes, and again, it's another fine line, a kind of disguised aversion for what we understandably want to get rid of. I read a a, a couple of lines by an American writer recently. She says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood, not a place I want to venture into alone. (laughs) And another question is, who's doing the work? who really is doing this work. It's so easily to centralize a sense of self in all, all things, and we don't always see how that centralized sense of me and who I am is implicated in the issues we have deemed to be a problem. How it's implicated in the very problems we, we've isolated and, and described as being who we are. Think of it. We have this refrain, I'm so judgmental. I don't like to be judgmental. I don't want to be a judgmental person. I have to stop being judgmental. I have to become a non-judgmental person. I have to let go. I don't know if you've ever given yourself that command and how much you realize how monumentally unsuccessful it is. I have to let go. Self-view, <coughs> the view of ourselves as being this kind of person, is very much informing the experience of judgment, and judgment is informing the sense of the imperfect self and who anyway is going to let go. I, I think, you know, we, we will come to this. I, I mean, I know it seems very weird to talk about this on the first night, but most of you will come to a very quick realization in this practice, that it's hard to pin down a sense of me that stays the same. You know, that it's pretty changeable, isn't it? Happy at breakfast, sad self at lunch, you know, elated at three o'clock, you know, depressed self at dinner time, you know. It's kind of hard to pin it down, really, you know, to something that I can really rely on. And yet still we imagine <clears throat> in this view of all the work that we need to do, where well, I think we kind of live with this hope that somewhere hidden in here <laughs> is this really autonomous yet undiscovered self who's going to step up to the plate and let go. <laughs> it doesn't actually work like that. <clears throat> if we we 
really look at the the early teachings, I, I don't think this view of work and working things out is really very much supported. It's like we could stand on one leg for a very, very long time. Instead, what I read is in the midst of our chaotic and at times difficult world, our chaotic and sometimes difficult heart, the Buddha proposed a very different approach. And the word in Pali, the language in which the early texts were written, is bhavana. This is very inadequately translated as meditation. Meditation, uh, the early translators struggled to find a word for bhavana. So the word meditation was pretty much borrowed from the Gospels. Um, But we're stuck with it. Uh, You know, it's not going to go away, meditation. But I think it's really important to understand more what the Buddha was talking about when he talked about bhavana, or when we talk about, you know, we're meditating. What are we actually doing? Bhavana means to cultivate. It means to grow. It means to bring into being. The, The Buddha lived in a very agricultural society, you know, so these are the kind of words that mean something to people, you know, that if you're a gardener or a farmer, it means something to you, the image of planting a seed and taking care of it and providing all of the conditions that help it to grow. And perhaps some of you can relate to that kind of imagery. And and this is what is actually meant by meditation. It's it's a dynamic, it's an engagement, it's an it's an interface with what's being experienced, with a way of engaging with our world of the moment, the classroom of our life and experience. And I think it's it's really sometimes I find it really helpful, people tell me, when they come into this room and instead of sitting here closing my eyes and thinking I'm meditating to actually instead pose the question, what is being cultivated in this moment? What is being brought into being in this moment? What seeds are being planted and cared for? It feels very different, doesn't it, than this just kind of, sit down, close my eyes, you know, and watch something. It's a very much, it's a caring dynamic. It's a nurturing dynamic. And... You know, I really encourage you to to this evening to reflect on on what orientation you have in your you bring to your own path. Is it one of work or is it one of cultivation? Do we walk into the hall here or come into a retreat feeling like you know we're gradually chipping away at the rock face? You know, I remember a poem, I think, by Kabir. I don't remember all of it, but it's, it's something like, I, I, I let go of my greed, and now I'm angry all day. You know, I worked on my anger, and now I'm a sexual elephant, you know. I, 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 you know, and we put down one thing in this world only to pick up another. You know, to, to reflect on what your orientation is. Am I working on my stuff? Am I working on my issues, my discontent? Sometimes I, I, I have a sense of how joyless that can feel. How joyless that can feel. You know, that I come into the hall and I roll up my sleeves, you know, I grit my teeth, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of ready for another session of toil, you know. And, and, 
it, it, it can feel almost like virtuous, can't it? It can feel sort of virtuous. Um, it <laughs> but I, I sometimes wonder in this orientation, I come across a, a lot about what helps us really to sustain the path if it's joyless? Hmm? Um, where does the inspiration come from? Or when we come into this hall and when we come into a retreat, what does it feel like if we come in saying, ah, time to cultivate, a moment of cultivation? And what are we cultivating? The lovely, the liberating, the healing. We're cultivating our capacity for joy. We're planting and caring for the seeds of compassion. We're planting and caring for the seeds of, of stillness and balance and non-identification. We're cultivating and bringing into being our capacity for contentment, for investigation. And as far as I, you know, and I think it's, this is an ongoing, I think, discussion, but, you know, I think increasingly I have a sense that it is the cultivation of all of this that really has the effect of relinquishing and releasing and unbinding the heart from the grip of the difficult, not as an act of will, not as an act of aversion, really as a gesture of care and of love and a process of unsticking and I, I really encourage you actually to, to check this out in your own experience during the retreat. Because sometimes you can sit or you can walk and, and the mind can feel so sticky and so contracted, you know, and a difficult thought or a difficult memory will arise and it just sticks. It's like the, it's like the mind is ripe for stickiness. You know? It'll just stick and build and magnify. And, and another time you can come, you're sitting, you're walking, the heart feels more spacious, more easeful, more, more open, more receptive. Exactly the same thought, exactly the same image will arise and it just passes right on through. The content hasn't changed. But the climate in which that content, the landscape of the mind in which that content is arising has truly changed. This is something for you to check out. There's an encouragement to again and again stand on the ground of the lovely. To stand on the ground of that which liberates our heart rather than standing on the ground of contractedness and the, the kind of prison of identification. Yet the Buddha really was a realist. He never underestimated the, the stubborn and the intractable nature of many of our emotional habits and many of our psychological patterns that create and recreate distress and pain again and again. I mean, have you ever had those deja vu, deja vu experiences in your own mind, you know, where you, you end up in the same place again and again? And you say, I've been here before. You know, I know this one, you know. Here I am once more in this storm. And, you know, we have been there before. 
It, it, it's the truth. And, and we see how cyclical, the cyclical nature many of our habits, patterns have and where they lead us to end up. The Buddha never underestimated the toxic power of aversion and craving and fear and doubt and despair. You know, going once saying, you know, I can think of no one thing that does so much harm as an untrained heart. But that once understood, I can think of no one thing that can be a greater friend than a well-trained heart. So the Buddha recognized that waking up is not easy, freedom is not easy. Compassion and kindness often feel elusive in the midst of our reactions and our emotional habits. And nowhere, I think, is this more clearly portrayed than in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness in the Satipatthana discourse that we've already mentioned where the Buddha actually sets the hindrance factors that I think have been the forgetfulness factors alongside the awakening factors, which are referred to in Pali as the Bojangas. And and in a way, this kind of setting of these two alongside, and I'll go into this more, really describes the tension each of us encounters in our process of awaking up. On one side, you know, think of it in this way. On one side, or in this hand, I hold so many of my familiar habit patterns of reactivity, of, of, of chaos, of confusion. The patterns that I get re- repeatedly ensnared in. On the other hand, in the other hand, I hold the intentions and the aspirations that bring me here. My, my sense of capacity, the, my, my longing for, for a depth of compassion and care and joy. And here they sit in the, the, these two hands. The forgetfulness factors really almost describe the landscape of distress. And the awakening factors really describe the landscape of inner freedom. But there's a tension between the two. I can see how much the forgetfulness factors are pulling me into repetitive patterns, repetitive behaviors, being stuck over and over again. And I, it, and I can see how the, the, inspir- the intentions and the aspirations and the longings are almost putting me in another direction. Now, this is not a negative tension. This is not something to, to judge or to feel despair about. This is a creative tension. This is our classroom. Now, although it seems odd, because often when we teach the four ways of establishing mindfulness, we go in quite an understandably developmental sense, a kind of linear sense, beginning with the body and then ending up, and then going through the contemplation of feeling, the contemplation of mind, and then ending up, usually on the very last day of the retreat, in the fourth way of establishing mindfulness, which is really an exploration, an investigation of, of phenomena, of what is actually going on, process. But of course, this is not necessarily needs to be linear and sequential. So let's start with... An, 
So it might seem a little bit odd that I'm focusing on this tonight, but it's just as good as on the last day. Actually, maybe more more useful. Hmm? So uh, let's actually look. What, what do we mean by forgetfulness factors? You know, this is what the these in in the tradition is often they're often referred to as the hindrances. Many of you will know them, and please don't let your eyes glaze over at this point. Hmm? Um, but they're more accurately kind of veiling factors. It's like if I threw a veil over this bell, you wouldn't be able to see it very clearly, would you? And this is what the, the hindrance, what we usually refer to the hindrances actually do. They, they veil our capacity to see things clearly. So just we just need to name them just to get clear on what we're talking about, just forgetfulness factors here, okay? The first of these is the craving for sensual pleasure. Now, this accounts for most of our distractedness. And this accounts for most of our busyness. And this accounts for most of our the ways in which we're, we're kind of prowling the world for something to excite us. And stimulate and gratify us. Traditionally, this is called the craving for sensual pleasure. It's a kind of basic core hunger that says, Make me happy. It looks at the world and says, Make me happy. But it keeps us pretty busy rearranging the conditions of our lives. And please try and personalize this a little without taking it all personally. But, but, but. To, to look at how that operates in our minds today. You know, we are in the most simple of environments. We can get so busy. Rearranging and conditions, you know, looking for something to keep us interested, you know, something a little exciting. And it's a kind of ideology. It's a sort of belief system of insufficiency. This is where the craving for sensual pleasure comes from. Then we've got our, our good and familiar friend aversion with its whole spectrum of irritability, uh, frustration, impatience, anger, dislike, fear, resistance, jealousy, envy, comparing. We, it's a very long list, you know. It's, it's got a full repertoire there. And we've got sleepiness and dullness, not the life fatigue I spoke about last night. But this actual heaviness, a sinking mind, sinking mind, the ways that we dissociate from the moment, the ways that we just want, that we seek numbness, or that we just check out. Then we've got restlessness and worry. You know, almost our kind of fear of stillness, the anxiety about the future, the, the discontent, the, the, the need to plan, to rehearse, to try and ensure a, a certain kind of certainty in the next moment. And then we've got the paralyzing doubt that shatters confidence, that undermines a sense of, of capacity. Now, it's really important when we think about the, these forgetfulness factors, actually see this continuum that the Buddha speaks about. Because these five veiling factors are said to be the five manifestation of the three big ones, greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's how greed, hatred, and delusion gets expressed in the five veiling factors. Now, greed, hatred, and delusion are said to be the three expressions 
of what is called a vidya, which is usually translated as ignorance or confusion, simply just not knowing what's going on or just knowing how things are. And, you know, you you hear this statement a lot in this teaching, you know, learning to see things as, as they actually are. This is not a statement of ideology, by the way. It's about actually learning to see the changing, unstable nature of all things that we can't rely upon for lasting happiness, that they're not me or mine. But, you know, Avidya, this kind of, this ignorance or confusion that the Buddha speaks about is twofold. One part is not knowing what's actually going on, and the other part is I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Think about that one. That's a big one, isn't it? I don't want to know what's going on. Why don't I want to know what's going on? Because it kind of ripped the rug out from under my feet. I'd have to change my life. I'd have to radically change the way I see and relate and interface with the world. So the Buddha knew this, you know, so when we don't want to know what's going on, greed, hatred, and delusion kicks in. And when greed, hatred, and delusion, or greed, ill will, and delusion kick in, and they're not particularly successful in strategizing our way through life, then the five veiling factors come in. Is that clear? (laughs) Is that completely clear? There's a kind of momentum here. There's a sort of continuum here. You know, it's very trackable. You know, this is not mysterious, by the way. I'm not talking about somebody's mind who lives down the street you know this is kind of this is very, very trackable we, we it's in something to be interested in something to be interested in now the buddha knew this very clearly and what did he suggest when he saw this, this kind of continuum going on did he say you should blame yourself did he say you should flounder in despair did he say you should judge yourself for being so hopeless did he say you should give up no He never said any of those things. The Buddha suggested in the midst of this, we cultivate and we learn to bring clarity where there is no clarity. We learn to cultivate kindness and compassion where there is none. We learn to investigate those dark rooms of confusions. We learn to cultivate what is absent and what is missing. He said this is a great courage of this path is learning to meet this and learning that actually we hold in our hands this capacity for transformation. (coughs) It's suggested we cultivate spaciousness, contentment, mindfulness, really in the midst of forgetfulness and in the midst of heedlessness. The veiling factors... They make us reactive. They are reactions. And we learn to cultivate intention instead of reactivity and to embody an intentional life. The more I practice, you know, the more I teach, the more it's sort of clear to me that addressing this tension between the forgetfulness qualities, factors, and the awakening qualities that really lead us to our deepest potential as women for wakefulness, for, for depth, for, for balance. So addressing this tension is somehow really a, kind of like the heart of this practice. Huh? It's really the heart of this practice. 
So what are the bajangas? What are these awakening qualities we're invited to, quali- to cultivate with curiosity, with appreciation, with uh, care? Recognizing these are already here as seeds of potential. Okay? We're not importing something. We're not manufacturing something. We're not pretending we're cultivating seeds that are already here within our hearts. The bojangas, these awakening qualities, they are what guide us through uncertain territory. They are our friends in, our, in troubled times. They are the light in the times of darkness. They lead to liberation. They are what allows us to go into the bad neighborhood without fear, but with friendliness. They're qualities to remember and to trust. Now, it's no surprise that these awakening qualities begin with what we usually refer to as mindfulness. I had breakfast with my brother last week. (laughs) He'd never heard the word mindfulness. I was so delighted to meet somebody who'd never heard the word mindfulness. He's he's like, amazing. He says, mindfulness? (laughs) It's not really a very good word for what we're talking about. Again, it it didn't come into being until the 1800s when the translators couldn't find a way to translate sati. But again, we're stuck with it. Okay. But let's understand it because it's so central. It's so much the ground of our path. Um, Sati has... uh, Sati, I, I want you to learn the word sati. I'm going to really befriend the word sati. Let's just put down mindfulness for a week and let's talk about sati. Okay? So there's four kind of core elements to this, this sati we're developing here. I'm going to try and not let the word mindfulness fall out of my mouth. <laughs> We've got these four, four, four elements to this, word, this, this, this sati. The first of it is simple knowing. And we've encouraged this today, haven't we? Just to simply know the body's here. The body's breathing. The body's listening. It's developing a kind of vocabulary inwardly for experience, isn't it? We're starting to know. We're starting to get some kind of dialogue going with what's going on. It's a simple knowing. It's the first dimension of sati. Second dimension of sati is, is its protective awareness. It's protecting the heart from the surges of impulse, from, from the habit patterns that so easily overwhelm. How? Because it's grounded in the simply knowing. So it's learning to protect the heart. The third dimension of sati is, is, is often uh, its investigation. What is going on here? How do I know what's going on? How do I know what sadness is? How do I know what sorrow is? How do I feel it? Where does it register? How is it born? How does it, how is it, how is the healing come about? And the fourth dimension of sati is teaching us to, to kind of reframe our narratives or to reframe our views. And I'll give you a really simple example of this if you have the patience to stay with me for just a little bit longer. Recently I was in London, I was in a restaurant. It was in a very big restaurant. And there were, there were four children, probably between the ages of three and ten, who were 
rampaging through this restaurant, screaming at the tops of their voices, playing hide-and-seek, shrieking, yelling, knocking things over. Um, you know, uh, the owner was getting a little vexed. Um, you could almost feel this collective aversion arising, you know, like, who is taking care of these kids? You know, it's went on for a long time, you know. And I did notice in myself there was a little twinge of wondering, you know, um, you know, as my plate got, you know, eh, anyway, so I was a little twinge. And then I couldn't see the parents of these children. And I, I thought, I wonder where their parents are. So I kind of craned my head and I looked around the corner. There was a group of women sitting there and they were all signing to each other. They had no hearing. This is what we call reframing our view. How easily we have an assumption and we form a view of what's going on based upon our reactions and then we look a little bit more deeply. It may not be so. And to see the world shift from this kind of contractedness to compassion in a moment and to understanding in a moment, this is a dimension of sati. Not only about the views that we have of others, and believe me, we can have a lot, and we can form new ones all the time, but also the views we hold about ourselves. So this is the beginning of the path. Sati is the beginning of the path. There's many ways we can describe it. But an affectionate curiosity, the willingness to be equally near all events and experiences with kindness and compassion. It sounds simple, but it's exactly what the veiling factors tell us not to do. It's exactly what craving and aversion and, and dullness and restlessness and doubt tell us not to do this. They tell us to turn away, to disconnect, to dissociate. It's why the Buddha so much talked about this path of cultivation as swimming against the tide. But this is what places us so directly in the classroom of our lives. It's not always comfortable. It's not always comfortable. It's not cozy. But it's a gesture of confidence in our own capacity. And our, and our own potential for awakening. And it is this cultivation beginning with sati that begins to counter heedlessness and impulsiveness and forgetfulness and sets us on a path of beginning to live a wakeful life, of seeing, touching, feeling, sensing, wholeheartedly living this life we're in, not in some future moment, but in this moment right now. Sati allows the emergence of all of the other awakening factors. It's also an expression of non-identification, you know, to be able to see a thought as a thought and not who I am, to be able to see the body as a body and not who I am, to be able to see a, an emotion as an emotion and not who I am. It's not all about me. It's not all about me. Please be aware, it's not like some people are mindful or have sati and others aren't. This is something we cultivate. This is something we bring into being. And we stop flight mechanisms. 
we stop fleeing, we stop abandoning, we develop this capacity for intimacy, for befriending. We learn to cultivate joy. We learn to make room for joy. Appreciation and celebration. It's so interesting that the Buddha lists joy as an awakening factor. It gladdens our heart. It opens the door to be touched by the many small moments of generosity, of kindness that come into our lives. To open our hearts to the various, all the small and large moments of kindness and generosity we can offer to another. We learn to cultivate and to make room for joy. And it's a, it wakes us up. You know, joy and numbness don't coexist. But we learn to make room, and sati is the way into this, by being present. We cultivate what is tranquility, serenity. This is something we cultivate. It's not an outcome. It's a present moment cultivation. In the Satipatthana Sutta, the introduction to the body begins with breathing in, calming the formations, breathing out, calming the formations. The formations are anything that's agitated. The thoughts, the body, the the feelings, the, the state of mind, cultivating a calm abiding in the midst of the surges of the impulses and the habit, in the midst of the thoughts and the emotions, cultivating a calm abiding in the midst of this life in which we're so easily propelled into agitation, learning how to rest and to cultivate stillness. Serenity is not the absence of events. It's the falling away of the reactions that arise in the face of events. It is something we cultivate. You know, after the Vietnam War, when all of the refugees were fleeing Vietnam in these rickety boats in seas that were, you know, with pirates and danger. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh used to say, if there was one person in the boat who knew how to be still, it could mean the difference between life and death for everyone in that boat. We learn to cultivate samadhi, and, and samadhi is a big word, it, ha, it has a big definition, but in this context it describes a kind of collectedness, a gatheredness that we cultivate. It's not concentration, it's not exclusivity, but a gatheredness. And the, 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 the image that came to me recently you know, in, in, in England where there's, there's many kind of uh, you know, big rolling hill farms with lots of sheep. You know, they develop. Some of you have probably seen that. They develop these wonderful sheep dogs who know how to gather the sheep. You know, you send a dog out, it'll bring in a couple of hundred sheep. You know, and and you know, responds to whistles, and then gathers them all together and takes them to pastures that are richer for them. And they don't frighten the sheep, they don't harm the sheep, but they have this wonderful capacity to gather and to collect. And this is kind of like what samadhi is in the context of our practice, you know. This is what sati and samadhi are doing, kind of gathering those wayward sheep-like thoughts and impulses and, you know, ideas and forgetfulness. And it's moving the mind and the heart to better pastures, Better pastures, where, where it will thrive. 
this this kind of collectedness doesn't rely upon closed eyes or perfect conditions. It it relies upon us actually our willingness to actually taste stillness, to walk another pathway. We learn to cultivate equanimity and poise and balance, blowing out those those fires, those the heat of those impulses of craving and aversion and abandonment. We take the small steps of being equally near all things, the pleasant and the unpleasant, calming the underlying patterns of craving and aversion and confusion. We learn to sustain the steadiness of our intention. This is so important in a retreat. Sustain the steadiness of your intention. Don't be dissuaded. Don't be deterred by the forgetfulness factors. Sustain your intention, sustain your aspiration, and it has an outcome in, in unbinding the heart. We're learning to abide, to stand on the ground of capacity rather than incapacity. To stand on the ground of, of confidence rather than on doubt in doubt, to stand on the ground of cultivation rather than working things out and pursuing some ideal of perfection. The Buddha said it very clearly that what we frequently dwell upon does this to our heart incline. That what we frequently dwell upon to this does our heart incline? If we frequently make our home in, in craving and aversion and doubt, our heart will incline in this way. If we learn to stand on the ground and to make our home in wakefulness, in remembering, in collectedness, in stillness, in calmness and compassion, to this our heart will incline. And all of this, this is, a, this is what we're doing here. This is what we're doing here, each of us. We're reaching for that sense of possibility and to stand on the ground of the possibility of really an unshakable liberation of the heart. I wanted to end with a poem. It sort of relates to this talk. It comes from a book of poetry with a very humble title. It says, A Little Larger Than the Entire Universe by Fernando Pessoa. He says, Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well and there may be a castle and there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I look only at the road before the bend, because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That for them is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know 
For now we know only that we're not there. Here there's just the road before the bend, and before the bend there's the road without any bend. (laughs) Thank you for your attention. If we could just take a minute quietly together and then we'll break for some walk and we'll move into a walking period. We have time for some walking now and then we'll come back for the last short group sitting of the evening and in a real encouragement to return. And there are some chant sheets outside if you haven't already got one. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.